The following episode may be best enjoyed if you feed your head before listening. Enjoyment plus information for the brain. It's the 5th of October, 1962. We see two small steps for British media that become, in retrospect, two giant leaps in the direction of making Britain the centre of cool in the 1960s. Andy, how, how cool was Britain before this? Well, in comparison to the U.S., not very. The U.S. had James Dean and Elvis and Marilyn Monroe. Uh, that's why youngsters like the Beatles were so into everything about U.S. pop culture. But, well, let's be totally frank with listeners here about our level of understanding of U.K. culture. Uh, it's, it's high ish. Uh, It's more than many expect, but although we're both part Anglo-Saxon, I've spent only two weeks there ever. Yeah, I've probably done about six weeks, all told. This is why we have UK guests on so often. Yeah. But of course, we research a lot just doing this project for the past uh, two years. I've learned so much about Merseyside geography. I know where Bootle is, (laughs) the culture of the area. I mean... And then the South, my grandmother came from London, and my band played with many British groups. uh, Yeah. But I think we still aren't really qualified from that minimal life experience to speak about what the place was like um, between the end of the war and today, which is 1962, October 1962. Yeah, yeah. The day that Love Me Do and Dr. No were released. Yes. Um... I think our British friends, please correct us if we're wrong, would say that uh, it was a frumpy, not-so-exciting place to be, really, which is why something different and new would always catch the attention of people the age of the Beatles. Um, They usually cite pirate radio, the goons, and other, other thingies that brought culture to life for them, almost like godsends. Hmm. Well, we'll be back uh, with more about the birth of British Cool in the 60s after this. I'm sure that people out there would be happy to argue with us that there are plenty of cool things going on in the UK, and you should, because we want to learn about it. (laughs) So please argue with us about it. Uh, But I mean, the goons, of course, there was hammer horror, for God's sake. We'd love to have guests on that can set us straight. And for the record, 
I took a DNA test, seriously, I did, mm. um, that puts me at about 35% English. Hey, that's 10% more than me. <laughs> so there. Oh, and don't be shy, Larry. Your band opened for The Clash. Everyone needs to know that. <laughs> no Elvis, Beatles, or the Rolling Stones in 1977. <laughs> uh, the roots of British Cool were there already. Uh, take, for example, um, what was it? The very offbeat comedy television show we featured in our group, um, Anthony Newley's uh, show. The strange world of Gurney Slade, and that calls for some music. Friends from the Northwest have pointed out that Coronation Street and other stuff, although not exactly cool, uh, was finally bringing the Northwest into national consciousness. And we see in the promotion of Love Me Do that EMI really leans into the Liverpoolness of the boys. You and I have privately had this discussion about how America was seen as cool at the time, and you usually say... Oh yeah, well I always say that that um, I've never understood uh, why the Beatles or anyone else in the UK thought that the grass was greener in the US. I've always thought that it was the UK that won that competition. And I don't know why you never get it, but I usually explain <laughs> um, modern art, modern jazz, the Kennedy administration, Hollywood, big cars, highways, and that music that started mm. with black Americans who wedded gospel with the blues and the electric guitar around the same time that country was becoming electrified. And it just sounded hot. And Sister Rosetta Tharp... Yeah. Uh, Willie Johnson from Howlin' Wolf's band et al. literally influenced everyone who influenced the Beatles. <laughs> so Carl Perkins, Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, Little Richard, they all cite them. Most of them, including Elvis, have actually named Rosetta Tharp as their main inspiration. <laughs> in the Beatles story, rock, soul, and country had to exist in the first place. America had to exist. <laughs> you can keep going back. The slave trade had to exist for black America to exist. 
and Liverpool to have uh, long ago prospered also from the mm. same slave trade. And but we're you know we're jumping too too far back. Yeah, we'll be right back. <laughs> So, uh, where are we going? It can be pretty easily argued um, that October 5th, 1962, was the most important day in the history of the Beatles thus far. More than five years after John met Paul, almost five since they were joined by George, and almost three years of constant performances, now a single was out. Mm. Uh, Alma Warren of EMI, Kim Bennett of Ardmore and Beechwood, and Brian Epstein, of course, were doing all of the promotional work. So the Beatles themselves uh, really just had to show up at the right place at the right time. But there was some nervousness. How well would Love Me Do fare on the charts? Mm. Would their upcoming trips to Hamburg hurt the single's progress? Would they have time to go see Dr. No? Uh (laughs) It seemed that there was always something to worry about. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, just having a single, you know, there's what Lewison says is 120-something singles per week. Right, no, yeah. No guarantee that yours is going to make it up the chart, your first single. Yeah. Stay tuned for more. There are moments when it's useful for us to allow, in our 60 years later perspective, a little bit of future. Hmm. Uh, I mean, on this day, it's still not known, like you said, that the Beatles would, uh, the Bond films, uh, etc., would be creating cool Britain of the 60s. You know, they had no way to, they they certainly wouldn't have guessed that at the time. And certainly, John, Paul, George, and Ringo don't know that yet. They're just praying that the single makes it into the top 20. The BBC Top 20. So this episode, as usual, we are jumping ahead just to preview or set out in our minds what the next six months have in store. Um, We're talking from late September 62, the promotional blitz by... Epstein, Barrow, and Calder, EMI, the record company, and Ardmore and Beechwood, the song's publisher, all the way through to after the second single has been released and makes its way to the top and starts the usual, of course, gradual descent from the top. Mm, yeah. And that's around late March. So mm-hmm. they're about to hit it big. Uh, they, they don't know it yet. That's next year. But there are a few things we're going to want to pay attention to during this period, which we'll say ends around March 1963. So it's a six-month period. Yeah. Um, The first thing is all the promotion required in order to get a new artist single to get up in the charts into the top 20, let's say. Yeah. Uh, Massive promotion. Um, Number two is UK isn't in the mania yet, but the seeds of it were there. Seeds of of Beatlemania were being laid during this period. We're going to need to ask our British friends, uh, what what was the level of cool, really, uh, during this six-month period? 
um, between the first record and UK Beatlemania, and then afterwards. I call the period of mania proto-mania. Um, many people might think that this uh, is a kind of mania itself, but it isn't. Can you explain why proto-mania is not mania? Well, well, think of the protozoa, a form of single-celled eukaryote. Mm. Wait, wait, this, this is more like prototype or proto-punk or proto-germanic proto language. Mm. Kind of the original or primitive version of something, or as we like to think of it, what came right before. So this is not mania. This is just came what came before the mania. Right. Mm. All right, let's have a little brain break. So protopunk uh, was like Iggy and the MC5 and the New York Dolls, mm. um, etc. Then actual punk, the Ramones, the Damned, the Sex Pistols. Then you get post-punk, uh, Joy Division, Gang of Four, etc. So again, protomania means before the mania, but also even if it's not yet acknowledged by the media, its origins are, are present. We'll be right back after this single cell of music. The records of new artists, as we mentioned earlier, don't just climb the charts on their own. Um, remember, RCA famously invested, what was it? They invested millions bringing Bowie's, Bowie's or Bowie's <laughs> <laughs> Ziggy Tour to America and to Japan after the band's phenomenal success in the UK. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure of the exact financial details, but it was a huge loss. Mm. And a wise loss, though. Um, just weird that they they played huge concert halls, sometimes with just a few hundred people in the audience. Hmm. Again, not really sure of the history here. Others might correct us if we get something wrong. I think this is probably right. Yeah. And the spiders rode around in limousines and drank champagne and probably <laughs> got up to all kinds of seedier stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, just for the sake of... Uh, saying something that you will likely be amazed by. Mm. Bowie actually played Love Me Do on that tour. How, how, how about that for tying in with the subject, right? Mm. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Um, but we should talk about the promotion of Love Me Do. How about right after this? Okay. <laughs>
a lot to potentially talk about when it comes to the promotion of Love Me Do. Um, EMI's Elmo Warren uh, was trying very hard, but with very little success, getting the single played on the radio. She was able to secure a few plays on Radio Luxembourg, but BBC Light Programming, which produced nine shows per week that played some pop music, refused every request. Mm. As for TV... The two big shows, Jukebox Jewelry and Thank Your Lucky Stars, both said no. I'm not in love with Jukebox Jewelry. Yeah. I'm not in love with Thank Your Lucky Stars. Uh, Brian, in the meantime, put together photos, bios, and press kits with the help of Tony Barrow. Uh, he also urged Liverpool fans uh, in the Beatles Fan Club newsletter to send in requests for Love Me Do um, so it would be played by the BBC. Um, and this actually had some unfortunate results. Hmm. Yeah, this, though, is not unfortunate. Back to the unfortunate results. Kim Bennett of Ardmore and Beechwood had arranged for Love Me Do to get played on the BBC's Saturday Club, uh, which would have as many as 10 million listeners on Saturday morning. Um, but those plans were scrapped when the producer of the show, Jimmy Grant, discovered a huge stack of postcards requesting the Beatles all postmarked Liverpool. Um, and thought that some cheating was going on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Bennett um, had some words with Brian about staying out of promotions and sticking to managing. Uh. Um, in any case, uh, this is just a touch of what was going on with promotion, and we'll talk about um, we'll talk about it more in the coming episodes uh, about this aspect of these first six months of the protomania. It must have been fun, but it sounds like you know high stress. Oh yeah, totally. Um, well, hey, Larry, uh, can you give us a summary, um, and then we can wind this down after this.
was a good piece. But we'll be back with another episode soon um, when we're good and ready. We'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) For now, we wanted to lay out this mental scaffolding for understanding the way that they had to conquer Britain before they ventured out to France, Sweden, and the USA. Hmm. We who weren't from the UK need the perspective uh, in order to make sense of the story. 1963, for for, uh, us who are from outside of England, Hmm. will feel like a prequel and has always felt to me like a prequel to the global mania we'd come to know. Yeah. Have we explained this current episode's title? Hmm. 17 with a bullet. Yeah. Hmm. I'm 17 with a bullet. <laughs> um, Tell us about it. Well, that was a song by Peter Wingfield. What is his name? Anyway, he had the song yeah. 18, 18 with a bullet. And it doesn't mean he's got a literal gun and he's going to shoot somebody. It means when something hits the charts with a bullet, it means it goes from nothing and then onto the charts. Right. Uh, In this case, uh, Love Me Do just seemed to just remain at 17 forever. (laughs) 17 with a bullet. Um, It was 17 on all the various UK singles charts and no higher. Right. But thanks to savvy promotion, really intense promotion, it shot up there with a bullet and would have staying power. Today, the 5th of October, being the release date shared by both Love Me Do and Dr. No, the word bullet just seemed to the point. <laughs> We're getting very near the end here, right after this. The next episode will be more back to normal. Uh, we wanted to give you all a bit of an introduction to what the next six months um, will be about. Uh, a little taste, shaken, not stirred. We're calling it the between the singles period. You know, that's the one-two punch of love me do and please please me. Mm. Um, so thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. And until then, I'm Adamson, Andrew Martin Adamson. <laughs> and you are? Fur, Rents fur. <laughs> or if I'm a Bond villain, I'm Rensifer. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I'll talk to you soon. Oh, and I'd like to apologize to all British people, English, Welsh, Scottish, Northern Irish, wherever, for anything we got wrong, we're Yanks, don't you know? (laughs) It's not our fault where we were born, you know. Cue music. (laughs) We need the music. music. Music, please. Yeah. Maestro.